This episode of the Police One Podcast is sponsored by Officer Store. Learn more about getting the gear you need at prices you can afford by visiting officerstore.com. Hey, you're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Welcome back. If you are a uh, listener, a regular listener, and if you haven't checked us out, we are on YouTube as well under the Police One channel. So check us out. Well, cold case workups are tough nuts to crack. We've seen some advancement since the discovery of the fingerprint, including forensic evidence of blood, hair, other bodily fluids, and of course, DNA. And the leaps in using DNA evidence have taken tremendous uh, stretches over the past decade, especially including genealogy traces from several decades old to quickly obtaining DNA evidence matches in as little as 30 minutes. Well, my guest today is Lindsay Wade, currently a senior law enforcement specialist at RTI International. She served as a Tacoma, Washington police officer for 21 years. And during her 14 years as a detective, she investigated sexual assaults, child abuse, missing person, and homicide cases. Lindsay helped create the Tacoma Police Department's Child Abduction Response Team, the CART, which was the first CART certified by the Department of Justice in the state of Washington in 2013. And since retiring from law enforcement, Lindsay joined the Washington State Attorney General's Office as a senior investigator assigned to the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative to pursue her passion using DNA to solve cold cases. Well, welcome to Policing Matters, Lindsay Wade. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, great to have you. You got a book coming out. We'll talk about that. Uh, do you miss the everyday working cases at the police department, walking in, grabbing that cup of coffee, chatting things up? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things I miss about police work, uh, the camaraderie and, uh, you know, just being able to start a case and go from beginning to end. Uh, so I, I do miss those things. Uh, but there are a lot of things about police work I don't really miss, like, you know, the 2 a.m. call outs and, uh, you know, being stuck out at a crime scene for eight hours at a time in the rain and, you know, freezing your buns off. So um, there are certain things I don't miss. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Out in the cold, in the rain, in the dark, no good. But you're in investigations. You've got a, an array of crimes that you investigated. Uh, certainly there's that sort of, you know, uh, rush when there's a new case, it's hot, the witnesses are available, there's evidence to look at. Now you transition to cold cases, which are kind of the opposite. How was that transition? Well, it wasn't that difficult for me because I was doing both. Uh, you know, when I first started working on cold cases, I think the first cold case I actually kind of volunteered to take was back when I was working sex crimes. And so I still had a full caseload and it was just, you know, something that I was trying to work on on the side. And even when I finally uh, became the full-time cold case detective for my agency, I still was on call. So I was still getting called out for the current homicides uh, and the current cases and having to kind of, you know, put my work on hold on the cold cases while I went out and did something on a fresh case and then I'd come back to it. So 
I never really got that complete separation where I was just 100% focused on cold cases. Yeah, so you're, I mean, you're probably the fifth or sixth person who does cold cases or did them when they were working. And uh, to also, all of you said that you did it in your quote spare time, right? So I think there's this misconception from the public that we have a room full of cops just waiting to, you know, assign stuff to. Uh, why don't you put more cops on it? Send more patrols, that kind of thing. And uh, it's really different. And uh, it's it's a shame that, you know, people like you with the initiative have to raise their hand and say, hey, I'd like to take on more. Can I get this cold case? In doing so, what was your methodology in picking a case? Did you just, uh, what what caught your eye? So there were a few different factors that I would take into consideration when I was looking at uh, a case. So we had a when I first, uh, when our, our cold case unit began in 2009, we had about 250 cold cases on the books. And uh, my predecessor had put together a nice spreadsheet with you know, some basic information about each case. So it was pretty quick um, reference guide to go back and look at. By the time I took over, I would say most of the cases with the low hanging fruit, so to speak, had already been resolved. But um, there were a couple cases, at, and I think we're going to talk about two of the cases later, uh, that were cases where there was a DNA profile developed of the uh, perpetrator in both of these cases, but there was no matching CODIS. And so while they were, <clears throat> there really wasn't a lot that we could do with the cases, we, we knew that they were going to be solved eventually with DNA. Uh, we just needed a match. So with those cases, there were a lot of proactive things that I chose to do as far as, you know, um, genealogy. And um, we used the two cases as sort of instead of doing a mock um, child abduction for our annual exercise for our CART team, we chose to use these two cases for the and it happened to be the 30 year anniversaries of the two cases. And so we basically did a two day full-blown exercise with our CART team, uh, and we released new information on the anniversaries about these two cases that had never been released to the public, uh, sort of, in, you know, in, in place of an amber alert, which is what we would see on a, on a current case. Um, so we did a press release and a, a big press conference, actually, and we opened a tip line, and, you know, we had FBI and detectives. We had about 60 people total working on it over two days. And um, it was really cool and it was really successful and it was a way for us to get new tips. I think we got about 120 new tips that came in and we were also able to go out and use all the personnel that we had available to us to go out and collect DNA samples from people that we had on the list to collect voluntary samples from. So, um, you know, that was kind of a unique um, exercise and, and sort of killing two birds with one stone, right? Like. We had to complete this exercise for the CART certification uh, requirements, but we also were able to get these two cold cases back in front of the public, um, get the you know the public interest and the media interest, uh, and let people know that we're still working on them. They're not they're not solved. Yeah. So what what a great description of using old school technique with the new DNA uh, breakthroughs. How did you get interested in DNA and gene genealogy? Was it something introduced to your agency or, or did you find it on your own? 
Uh, well, DNA in and of itself, you know, I had been using ever since I became a detective in 2003 on uh, sex crimes cases and, you know, then homicide cases. But, uh, you know, genealogy, I really learned about in 2015 for the first time. Um, and it was sort of word of mouth, right? Like you learn when you go to these conferences and you network with other people and you hear about what they're doing. Uh, and I actually he heard about what Phoenix PD was doing uh, on a cold case that they had just resolved the, the Phoenix Canal murders. And I heard that they uh, had used a woman named Colleen Fitzpatrick to help them uh, with the case. And, and this was like the early days of genealogy. This is, you know, three years before the Golden State Killer case was solved. And at that time, um, genealogists were just using uh, YSTR technology, which, you know, they could give you a potential last name or surname of the suspect based on their DNA. And so I reached out to her and she ended up working on these two cases with me and ultimately provided me with a, a couple of surnames on both cases. And uh, one of them turned out to be correct in, in one of the two cases. So, you know, it was just, it's another tool in the toolbox and, you know, it's not something that you want to stake your whole case on. Um, and, you know, now forensic genealogy has evolved to be much more precise uh, using autosomal DNA, not just YSTR DNA. Uh, so it's come a long way, uh, but, you know, and it's great. Obviously, there's been over 600 criminal cases solved around the country using forensic genealogy. So, I mean, it really uh, has made a huge impact on cold case investigations around the country. Yeah, for sure. And so... I mean, we've got this whole backlog of cases that we can look at when we do have evidence, right? We need the DNA. We need something to go on. But if you did come up with a case, a cold case, and you had DNA that hadn't been processed yet or something that had potential for DNA, what was the processing turnaround like when you wanted to get samples matched? You go to the crime lab and you you want them to look at something that's 30 years old and they look at you like, do you see all this other stuff that I'm processing now? Did you have some sort of relationship or did you do it through favors or did you have a dedicated, do you have a dedicated cold case uh, forensic technician? Yeah, we did not have anyone dedicated. And uh, the way our lab did things is like if the original scientist who did the work on the case was still there, the, it would go to them. And so it would just be in their queue. Uh, so it really was sort of a roll of the dice. But no, we didn't. I mean, I, I didn't get any special treatment. Um, you know, my cases sat. And so it was just like everybody else's. You had to get in line and the cases were worked based on the priority level. Um, so even, you know, with the with the. Um, a couple of the cold cases, I mean, I was sending out, uh, well, we sent, sent out dozens and dozens of DNA reference samples. And, you know, I would have to wait for several months uh, between, you know, batches of samples to be tested, and then compared to the, the crime scene evidence, and then I, you know, get a report back and send another batch out. So it, it took a lot of time. And typically, I would have multiple cases going at once, because I knew that the turnaround time at the lab could be six months, nine months, a year or longer. And so um, I would typically have multiple cases uh, where I'd send evidence out to the lab and just sort of put them on the back burner because I knew it was gonna take a while for the evidence to be returned. Um, and I would move on to something else while I was waiting. Yeah, and then of course, Murphy's Law, they all come, the results all come the same day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Well, listen, you've had some really uh, interesting cases. I want to ask you about those. Uh, but first, I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Officer Store, equipping protectors with passion. That's how we operate, and it's how we live. We understand that having the right gear can mean the difference between life and death. Our goal is to get you the gear you need, when you need it, at prices you can afford. Visit us at officerstore.com. And we are back, and I'm speaking with Lindsay Wade, Senior Law Enforcement Specialist at RTI International and Cold Case Specialist. You worked extensively on two particular cases near the end of your career that were still on the table when you left, uh, really close, but uh, they were almost immediately solved thereafter. Tell us about those. Yes, the, these were two cold cases that were near and dear to my heart and, and to many others. Uh, you know, every detective that touched these cases over the years really had, a, you know, just a place in their hearts for these victims and their families. And, you know, they were never forgotten about. But these were uh, two little girls who were murdered in Tacoma uh, back in 1986. And they were murdered about four and a half months apart. The cases were very similar. The, the girls uh, were both, you know, blonde, blue-eyed. One was 12, one was 13. They both were uh, out on bikes in local parks. And so, and the parks were not that far from each other. And so um, the cases were thought to be the work of the same suspect for about 28 years, uh, with good reason. They, you know, everything about the two cases from the abduction to the um, sexual assault and, and subsequent murders, of these girls were very similar. And so uh, the cases were worked together for 28 years as if, you know, they had been committed by the same person. And then we got a bombshell uh, revelation. Um, I think it was 2013, maybe, or 2014, we found out that we had two different offenders based on DNA testing. Mm. And so that really, um, you know, changed the course of the investigations. We had to go back to the drawing board and reevaluate a lot of suspects that had previously been eliminated because they, you know, they had been eliminated because they were not available for one of the murders. And so now understanding that we had two separate offenders, um, you know, we had to go back and, and look at those people again. And so uh, it was a very tedious process. I spent many, many months going through these handwritten reports and typewriter reports and, you know, all these paper files and entering all of the mail names from both case files into a database so that they would be easily searchable. And it allowed me to prioritize these people um, based on whether or not we had their DNA. And I knew that DNA was going to eventually solve these two cases. And so um, ultimately, I created a, a, a ranking system for these individuals and <clears throat> made a list of people that I wanted to collect DNA samples from, sort of as my high priority group of people. So some of those people we were able to collect from during that two-day CART exercise I mentioned. Um, and a lot of them we ended up collecting with the help of the FBI, because as you know, these cases were 30 years old at the time. These people have moved. They're all over the country. Uh, so we we had um, the FBI collect about 40 samples from people out of state as well. And um, I think overall we had about 160 uh, DNA reference samples that we collected. 
as as a part of this case. And this, the, like I said, we had every male name in the case file totaled to be about 2,300 names. So I only, it was a very small uh, number of people that we collected from, but you know, that was sort of like my first round, if you will, of DNA collections. Um, once we got that 160 collected, I started cataloging all the samples and then sending them out in batches to the lab to be tested. And every time I would get a report back from the lab, um, you know, it would say none of these people match. And so then I'd send the next batch of 20 people out and, you know, wait five, six, you know, seven months. And then I'd get another report back saying none of them match. Finally got to the end and I had the last 18 samples that I sent out in um, January of 2018. And uh, at that time I hadn't planned on retiring, but then I got a job offer at the attorney general's office. And so I ended up after a lot of soul searching, deciding that it was time uh, to move on. And so I retired in April of 2018 and 25 days after I retired, a DNA match comes in from that last batch of samples to uh, my suspect in one of the two cases. And, uh, and he was out of state. So he was a, a, someone that the FBI had collected from. And still alive. Still alive. Yeah. So he was arrested. Um, the cool thing about it was that even though I couldn't be in Illinois to put the handcuffs on him, I was uh, allowed to be the person that made notification to um, the victim's mother. So mm -hmm. I got to show up at her doorstep at whatever it was, eight in the morning, uh, and give her the news that she'd been waiting for for over 30 years by that point. So it was pretty awesome and I, by far the best day of my career. Wow, I bet. So powerful. Yeah. So that was great. And then the other case, uh, Michelle Welch, her case was solved about a month later uh, with genetic genealogy. And that um, had been in the works. I had been working with um, Barbara Ray Venter, who's a very talented genealogist down in California. Uh, and so I had been working with her on the case before I retired, and she was able to come up with uh, uh, potential um, brothers, I think it was two brothers, uh, that she was able to provide to the police department as a potential lead. Um, I believe Parabon uh, Nanolabs was also involved, and their genealogist came up with the same two brothers. Um, and long story short, they were, uh, one was eliminated and one was turned out to be the suspect. He was also still alive and living in Tacoma. And uh, so he was arrested. Both of these men have since um, been convicted and they're both currently in prison. Yeah, so I mean, the chances are that that wasn't their only crime. Could you tell um, between the initial homicide and then present day, what, what was the record like? Were they, Nothing. were there? Nothing. Nothing. These, yeah, they, so uh, one of the suspects had zero criminal history. The other one had two misdemeanor arrests from the 80s, uh, but nothing sexual, nothing deviant. It was like, you know, tr criminal trespassing and vehicle prowling or something. I mean, something very low level, um, nothing that would get your attention. And that individual, uh, his name was Robert Washburn. And he, uh, he, like I said, he had no criminal history. He was in the case file, though, and so he was he was um, someone who had called in a tip on the other the other girl's case. So this is 
where you kind of get into the bizarre psychology of things, he called in a tip on the other girl's case before he committed the murder. Wow. Like three months before he committed the murder. So that's why he was in the case file in the first place. And as it turned out, he had the same surname that the genealogist Colleen Fitzpatrick had given me. So that's why he ended up on my list of people to get DNA from, not because of his past or his, you know, his criminal history. Yeah. But did that stick out to you when you read the file? No. Yeah, because, amazing. Yeah, I mean, we didn't know, you know, until he until the case was solved, we didn't know that he was a suspect. So the fact that he called in a tip on the other case, it was like, okay, great. Yeah, I mean, it makes you I I mean I'm amazed at the lack of criminal record, but I wonder too if you know, some of the paraphilia indicators that are low level, like, you know, being a peeping Tom or, um, you know. Indecent exposure. Yeah, those sort of low level things. You wonder how many times that, you know, that behavior might have been seen and dismissed or uh, I just wonder if they oh. are, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that you can discount that type of behavior. And we I actually helped to get a law passed in Washington in 2019, and it's called Jennifer and Michelle's Law, and it expanded the DNA um, law in Washington. And one of the things that it did was it added the crime of indecent exposure to the list of crimes that require a DNA sample to be collected uh, at the time of conviction, because it's clear from the data that I mean, if you go and look at the the, the histories, just just, just the self-reported histories of um, you know, take the population of civilly committed sex offenders, you know, they will tell you that they engaged in a, a lot of indecent exposure activity, um, you know, exposing themselves to people and you know, to women, to to kids, to whoever. Um, and this went on a lot of for, for a lot of them, it went on in between the contact sex offenses, you know, so it wasn't like they just started with that and then didn't do it anymore. Sometimes they did it continuously. So I think it's, it's not a crime to be just scoffed at or laughed at or, you know, brushed off. It's something that it should be taken seriously. Yeah, for sure. And the line's been blurred with societal changes over the last 20 years. Um, you know, what used to be extremely taboo is is somewhat accepted on, on different levels. Mm -hmm. In these two cases, what was your involvement like post-identification? Uh, Once these two were arrested, were you then recalled during the, the court cases to testify about your investigative techniques? Uh, so luckily, neither, neither of these cases went to trial. Uh, so I did not have to testify. Um, I was involved with some of the meetings that took place in the prosecutor's office with the victim's family and discussing, you know, uh, potential plea agreements or, you know, things of that nature uh, in one of the cases. Uh, and then I attended, you know, the court hearings, of course, but, you know, I didn't have to testify uh, in either, either case because there was no trial. Yeah, I was going to follow up. I, I talked with another cold case investigator a while back about, you know, the exculpatory evidence that we give uh, during uh, court hearings. And I wonder if we just give away too much uh, of our investigative secrecy uh, so that we're able to use it again and catch some of these predators, either online predators or you know, these sexual deviants that uh, when we talk about our investigative techniques and 
using digital forensics and in, in tracking them. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, I don't, I don't think that there's any way around it, uh, to be honest. And while these criminals, they probably do gain a lot of insight and knowledge uh, by reading the search warrant affidavits and listening to testimony and, and things like that. At the end of the day, they're not actually that smart. So, uh, you know, I'm just going to give you a case in point. I had a serial rapist who thought he was educated enough to eliminate his DNA from the crime scenes. So he would actually make the victims bathe uh, in order to eliminate his DNA. But he was not bright enough to understand that if you leave the toothbrush that you made the victim brush their teeth with in the shower, (laughs) then your DNA is still there just because it's not physically on her body anymore. It's still on the towel. It's still potentially in the tub and it's still on that piece of evidence. So they're not quite that smart. You know, they make the victim bathe, but they leave cigarette butts and they drink out of, you know, orange juice containers at the crime scene and leave those there. So while they kind of think they know what they're doing, they really don't. Yeah. Real genius. Yeah. We've had, we had a, a, particularly heinous homicide, uh, multiple victims in San Francisco. And the suspect uh, took every cleaner he could find, shampoo, Clorox, under the sinks, in cupboards, poured it throughout the house, thinking that he was going to spoil any kind of DNA evidence. Of course, it didn't work. Yeah. I mean, I've had several, especially sexual assault cases where the offender tries to eliminate their DNA and all they do is just make a big mess, but their DNA is still there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what are you doing these days? Uh, Are you still on the hook for some of these cold cases or are you you running off with some new ones? No, I uh, luckily, I don't think I have any anything outstanding uh you never know with criminal trials though things come back and you know whatnot but so far i haven't had any anything recently um so currently i'm really just focusing on my my role at rti um you know as kind of a subject matter expert and law enforcement liaison um and then in my you know my personal time just getting out there and trying to promote my my new book um, which is a collection of cases that I investigated over the years, um, including those two from 1986 uh, that I talk about extensively in the book. Um, and then I'm, I'm also working on a, a new podcast, actually. So I'm hoping that will get some legs and um, be available for listeners here in the near future. Yep. I mean, I don't know anyone who listens to just one podcast. There's there's some good ones out there. And yeah, I wish you success there. Uh, can't wait to hear one of them. Well, thanks for taking time with us today. Wish you good luck on the book. And we will have, have a link uh, in our show notes for our reader, our listeners and watchers to take a look at. And uh, thanks for being on the show today. Great. Thanks for having me. You bet. Hey, to our listeners, uh, let me know what you think about cold cases and the DNA innovations and uh, what's happening near you. Drop me a line at policing matters at policeone.com. That's policing matters at policeone.com. Thanks for listening. Take good care, be safe, and hope to talk to you again real soon.